0: Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll continue in our series on authentic Christianity. If you're counting, this is message number 16 of that series on authentic faith, what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus according to Scripture. We started a lot of our series in the Old Testament character of God, who God is, and now we find ourselves in the New Testament, one of the most important and consequential messages of Jesus' ministry here in Matthew 5. We took that word that you see nine times in these first verses, uh, blessed. You'll see it nine times between verses 3 and 11. It's important that we understand and that we be reminded each time what that word really means. That word in the Greek is makarios. Makarios, it means inwardly satisfied. It means happy, content. It's a contentment and a happiness that is not tied to anything of this world. It's a contentment and happiness that only God can give a believer. It's happiness and contentment that is tied directly to the person of Jesus Christ and not my human emotions and not the experience of life here on this earth, which if you pay attention at all, uh, the world in which we are living in is most difficult at this time. It's dangerous. It's uh, sad most days. You Pay attention to what's happening in Russia. Uh, seems to be we're on the brink of war. All of Europe is upset and on the fringe and the Germans are Uh, willing to take a huge toll on their natural gas line and the price of natural gas is set to quadruple there. The whole world's unstable. Uh, The happiness that's mentioned here, the peace that's mentioned here, the inward contentment that's mentioned here cannot be touched by the things of this world. In other words, this is a happiness that CNN can't wreck. This is a happiness and a contentment that Fox News cannot steal from your home, This is a happiness and a contentment that Newsmax or social media can rob you of that peace and of that comfort. This is something that comes from God. It's directly tied to his character and who he is. We ought to say amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you God that my happiness and my inward contentment does not have to be tied to the craziness of this world, amen. That was the first message of this blessed life. We've gone through a couple of these Beatitudes, verse number 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about what that means. It's true poverty, spiritual poverty. The word that he used there indicates that it has to do with a beggar, that this is someone who cannot do anything in their own ability, in their own capacity. What you need spiritually only God can give you. You cannot muster up enough good energy. You can't embrace what the pagan eastern religions think about karma and put out some sort of green jello wiggly vibe from your being and that be some sort of replacement uh, for spiritual necessity that man is born with. It's the Adamic nature of man. It goes back to who your father Adam was. We're broken. We're fractured. It's who we are. Embrace it. That's just the facts of who human beings are. The good news is there is a colon or a comma there, but in grace and in mercy, John 3.16 is in our Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, the poverty, the beggarship that you belong to doesn't have to stay there. You can beg and in mercy and in grace, God will bestow upon you salvation. He will give you everything that you need. We talked about mourning this verse 4, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. This is not mourning over things that are temporal of this world. The Bible's clear that for you to pine or you to whine or complain or gripe about things that you feel like you deserve that you don't have that you would mourn uh, that you don't have the money you feel you deserve or the house or the car or the stock and bonds account that you feel that you deserve. Uh, that, that can become sin. It's a sinful mourning. This is a different type of mourning that Jesus was talking about. He's mourning over the condition of man. The condition of man is what we just talked about, that sinful nature. Christ mourned over Jerusalem. Christ mourned over uh, the mankind problem. That's what he's mourning over. And we can mourn over our own condition, our own failure, our sin. It is staggering when we put it in light of who God is and what he is. So we've reviewed all of that. And now we come to this next beatitude, verse number five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. C.H. Spurgeon talked about a ladder of truth, the gospel ladder, that it goes to the very ground, to the lowest place where grace and law meet. And it talks about how that has to come down to the lowest point of humanity. And that's what this is. This is the most practical uh, relationship and application of what it means to be a Christian, and it comes directly to where we are. This isn't something that you are unable to obtain. This isn't something that you can't understand. This isn't just for theologians and scholars and doctorate candidates. This is for each and every man and woman and young person under the sound of my voice today. It applies to you. This ladder that comes directly to you. Our responsibility is to simply get on the ladder. So we're on this ladder of the Beatitudes. The first rung on that ladder, we talked about it, was poor in spirit, that we're spiritual beggars. We're in poverty when it comes to our spiritual condition apart from God. The second rung, we were pressed in the soul, pressed in the soul, that we would mourn sin, that we would mourn the sin of our world, the sin of those around us, that we would see them lost and undone without Christ and embrace a heart that carries a burden to pray for them and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. That was the second rung. And then now we go to this third rung. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what this rung is, is patience in strife. Patience in strife. Poor in spirit, pressed in soul, patient in strife. Patient in strife. This beatitude indicates that there is a real blessing in store for those who are patient in relation to their circumstance or the circumstances of their life. A real blessing for those who are willing to embrace who he is and what's available for that person through him. God is saying those people will be blessed. The meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, There are a couple examples of meekness in scripture. Two I want to give you. Number one is Moses. Look what Numbers 12 verse 3 says. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. The song that Miss Amber just sung comes directly from Matthew 11, the 29th verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. Meek men as examples But I submit to you that these meek men were not weak men. Meekness is not weakness. Humility is not weakness. The world, you must know, you must understand, that the world does not admire, the world does not... Ascribed to or prescribe to the thought of someone being meek and humble and lowly, as Christ describes himself. The Lord Jesus embraced this meekness. He manifested this meekness when he chose to rode into Jerusalem on a colt instead of a war horse. It's the attitude, it's the posture, it's the way in which Christians carry themselves. Jesus said that they will be blessed, those who are meek, they'll be happy. They'll be inwardly satisfied when you can become meek before God and meek before men. But the world sees meekness as spinelessness. The world sees meekness as spiritlessness that you have no spirit, no umph, no zeal, no desire, that you're willing to be walked all over. Don't tread on me. Flags are sold more than just about any other flag besides the American flag on Amazon. It's a wonderful thought, and I'm not talking about giving up your liberty or your protection or your freedom, but I'm talking about in the way in which you conduct your life and carry yourself as a meek, humble person before God and before man. In God's wisdom... The way he has life set up for us, the way he has the relationship with us set up, what is coming from man, those who believe, uh, if you'll notice in God's wisdom, the cross comes before the crown. The torture and the pain and the suffering of the cross comes before the crown of glory. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the world, lost people, cannot understand biblical humility, biblical meekness. It makes no sense to them, and they will call it foolishness. American culture, American society breathes nothing of humility. It breathes nothing of meekness. Rather, it encourages the polar opposite. It encourages pride. Take what's yours. Get it while you can. You need double, you might need triple. It's give me, give me, give me, and it doesn't matter what it costs around me. That is the culture of the day. Christians are warned that if you want to be blessed, happy, inwardly satisfied, and inherit the earth, Jesus calls you to be different. Jesus calls you to be the contrast between what the world is and what he has for his people, the requirement of Christians, the desire of Christ in how we live. So what did Jesus truly mean by meekness? This verse, is short it just seems to fall off the page. Blessed are the meek. And there it is. And we're left to decide what meek is. No, no. Go to Psalm 37. As Jesus is sitting on this beautiful hillside teaching the people that were there, no doubt a Jewish audience, go to Psalm 37. Go all the way down to the 11th verse. Say amen when you're there. Psalm 37. The 11th verse. But the meek shall inherit the earth, Mm. and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Jesus knew what he was doing, Jesus knew what he was preaching, Jesus knew what he was teaching. He knew the Jewish audience that was sitting there with him. He knew his disciples that were there listening. He knew what they had been brought up uh, learning and what they have hidden in their heart. And he is making a direct link back to this Psalm of David in Psalm 37. So what we have here in Psalm 37 is uh, more description, and really it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus thinks of meek People, what he desires of meek people. The psalm here will hold up what Jesus was teaching thousands of years later. Can I just, as a side note, allow myself to pull a Ralph Sexton and run this rabbit trail? If you wanted to construct the greatest lie to ever be told to mankind, you couldn't put this many people in one pile in one room writing and keeping the lie together for thousands of years and that thousands of years later even that we would be here today and that it would be kept intact. Your Bible is inerrant, it is infallible, it is wholly inspired, God set this thing up. It would take more faith to deny that this is the word of God than to embrace that this is holy scripture. That's just a side note. This Bible is real, ladies and gentlemen. You can pretend all day long that it does not apply to you, but at the end of the day, this is the truth of God's Word. Now, continuing on, Psalm 37. What is meekness? What is a picture of meekness that Christ desires of His followers to live in? Look at what it says in verse number 1. Fret not, fret not thyself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Meek people, number one, if you're taking notes today, I'm going to give you six of these quickly. Number one, meek people fret not. Meek, humble Christians fret not. We're called not to fret. We do not fret evildoers because evildoers are everywhere. It's the world in which we live in. It's the cosmos. It's the ebb and the flow. It's the dominion and temporary control of Satan on this earth. The evildoers are everywhere. Turn on your TV, get on your phone, pick up a newspaper, talk to somebody in the street. Evil abounds, it's there. But he's saying, We fret not even though the evil exists, even though the evildoers are there. Why can we be that way? Why do we not have to fret over evildoers? Because at the end of the day, it's not confidence in me that I have to have. It's not confidence in my prayer life. It's not confidence in my faithfulness to church. It's not confidence even in the Baptist doctrine or in a, a preacher. It's the confidence in who God is. You don't have to fret the evildoer because God's bigger than the evildoer. You don't have to fret the evildoer because the evildoer can't lay a finger on your head unless the God in heaven who is sovereign and in control of it all allows it to come to pass. That's why you can fret not. God is big, he's powerful, and he has ultimate authority. But understand this, and I'll be honest, during my study, I had fret going down a different path of understanding This word fret has nothing to do with fear. This word, if we take it apart, this word has nothing to do with fear. It has everything to do with anger. It has everything to do with anger. Which makes sense. You're not going to be envious of something you're afraid of. But you can be envious of something your flesh is mad about. The, the, The Hebrew word here for fret. It's a verb in Hebrew called tilt har, tiltar, And it means this, it means to burn with heat or fire with regard to being damaged or harmed by the surrounding circumstance or incident. Go further into the analytical Hebrew lexicon to be burned up with rage, to have a red nose of anger. This has to do with anger. So, what the Bible is saying, meek, humble, Christ centered, Christ following people do not get angry, do not get red in the face at what the world's doing. They are separated because there is a confidence in God and who he is and who his ability is, what it means for him to be God. There's separation between his followers, his people, and the world. And that you are not to fret the evildoer. You're not to be angered by the evil of this world. Second Corinthians gives us a perfect description of what the world is. They're blind in the mind. They can't see, they can't think, they can't process, they can't understand. And sometimes when you speak the truth, it so enrages the enemy influence in their life that you can become angered. You can watch things happen in our country, things that are being passed as law, and you can say that's not right and become angry. The Bible says be angry and sin not. There's a difference in righteous indignation and you being mad just to be mad. Humble, humble, meek people fret. Not. And they put their confidence in who God is. He goes on to add don't be envious of the wrongdoers. Don't envy them. And here's the point there are people in this world who are filthy, rotten, low down, terrible influences on the culture. They deny God openly, they curse the name of God openly, they admit openly that they are bound for damnation in hell. There is a real resolve and sort of a resilience amongst that crowd in this day and hour. They're empowered. There's great wickedness and evil on the land. And the Bible says sometimes you will see those evil, wicked people get in control. You'll see them come to power. You'll see them have money. You'll see them have access, fame, and fortune. The Bible says don't worry yourself with what they have. Don't worry yourself with the fact that the guy at work that you've worked with for 15 years who's been skimming off the top and uh, who cusses and drinks and does all the things you don't do, and, but yet every five years he gets a new bass boat and he just moved to a brand new house. The saddest story in life may be that that bass boat and that new house is the greatest thing you'll ever experience. The Bible says don't envy what they have. Don't envy the fame of this world. Don't sell your soul and your innocence, young people, to be famous like the world. It's filthy lucre. It's all going to burn up. It's corruptible. God said, don't envy them. Be thankful for what you have as a son and as a daughter of God. Don't envy them. Number two, meet humble people. Trust God. Uh, look at this verse says, verse number three. Trust in the Lord and do good so thou shalt dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. This verse, instantly, when I thought about trust, for some reason, Miranda, I came to uh, the animal called horse. Miranda, my wife, loves horses. She thinks they're beautiful. She likes to see them running up and down the beach, standing in the stall eating hay, doing whatever that is they do. I had a near-death experience while on the mission field in San Jose, Costa Rica with a very large horse. His name was not Mr. Ed. And I promised God, Brother Bill, while I was on that horse, Lord, if you'll get me off of this horse, I'll never get back on one for as long as I live. And I'm going to keep that promise. We're in New York City. We walk out of our hotel on the West 59th, come into Central Park, and Miranda sees, wouldn't you know it, the horse and buggies, and she had to ride. So being the good husband that I was, I said, okay, I'll get in the buggy, and I'm going to face that way so I don't have to see the horse that's pulling me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this horse has turned back, and it sees me coming, David, and this horse is going, no, not today. I'm not dealing with this. And in my mind, that horse is going to wait for me to get on that buggy and take off as fast and as hard as he can to Columbus Circle, head on into a Mack truck, and end it all. I've got all of this played out. This is it. This is the end. Lord, I'm not getting on the horse. I'm just getting in the buggy. I don't like horses. It's okay. I know a lot of people do. But we got on that ride, and that horse began to do what it does. And I couldn't help but notice, Brother Earl, that horse stayed so true to its path. He never veered left. He never veered right. When it was time to stop, he stopped perfectly on a dime. There were fire trucks going by. There was mass humanity. It's New York City. Cabs, people, sights, sounds, smells, some you don't want to experience. But this horse never got off track. We get back to where he drops us off. I get out and I notice the horse has this huge set of headgear on and these blinders that are fixing its gaze to one spot. And what I notice is that the horse did not pay attention to the elements that surrounded his walk through the park. He didn't pay attention to the fire truck going by. He didn't pay attention to the people yelling and screaming and carrying on. He just kept doing what the person behind him that he could not see but that he could feel he paid attention and he obeyed that person. And, ladies and gentlemen, what you need in life is to put blinders on to what the world's opinion of what your life should be. The world will tell you you've got to have so much money. The world will tell you you've got to have so many boyfriends or girlfriends, or they got to look a certain way, or they got to have certain pedigree, or that you've got to wait till X, Y, and Z happens before you really got it together. That is a lie. Put your blinders on to the world. Not that we don't pay attention to their their need, but we don't listen to their influence on what we should do because the guy who's holding the reins happens to be the Lord God himself. And when he nudges right, then you turn right. And when he nudges left, then you turn left. And when he says stop, you better stop. He knows what's best. Trust God with your life. And sometimes we go all over the place like a chicken with no head trying to fix the problem. Well, I see the problem. I know what the issue is. And and I'm going to get all up in this and I'm going to fix it. No, you're not. You're going to cause more damage. You're going to cause more issues. And at the end of the day, you're going to have 10 times more problems than what you started with. Because you didn't give it to God. You listened to the world. You got off the path. And now people that you love and including yourself, you're hurt. And it's going to take time to get back on track. Trust God. Follow Him. Nothing's changed in heaven. Nothing's changed in His Word. Trust God. Verse number three, he goes on to say, dwell in the land. He's telling him to stay put. Stay put. Don't don't blow like a leaf in the wind. Stay put. Be faithful. He says, cultivate the ground, grow a garden, and I'll feed you. Stay put, even in the adverse times, even when it's not popular. Listen now, church, even when it's not popular to carry a Bible and to be identified as those who love Jesus Christ, he said, stay put. Stay put. Just be faithful. Have confidence in who I am. Fret not. Trust God. Be confident in who he is. But stay put. Dwell in that land. The meek man is staying put. In love and in kindness, can I... Can I give you something from the bottom of my heart? Quit looking for the easy way out spiritually. Quit looking for the easiest way out. You can follow all the inspirational pages on social media. You can absolutely follow until your fingers fall off. But if you're not reading and consuming God's word, you're set up for failure. I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care who your daddy was. If you're not consuming God's word, you're set up for failure. You say, well, I've got a mom that prays for me, a dad that prays for me. If you don't carry a prayer burden yourself, you're set up for failure. Quit looking for the easy way out. Quit making these emotional reactions left and right. You're all over the place. Go back to the principle of what God said and stay put and trust Him. Quit looking for the next great evangelist that's got some new prophecy that he's pulled out of thin air and put together and got a nice little graphic and he's paid millions of dollars to put it all over TV and he's saying that this is going to happen in 10 days and it doesn't happen and he makes another excuse. Quit listening to that garbage and go back to the truth of God's word. Hold tight to what he said and trust him, but stay put. Stay put. This is what the meek, humble man does and it's almost a posture of honor towards God. I know who you are. I know what I was. I know what you did for me. I humbly, meekly will follow and trust you. You've got this taken care of. That should be our posture towards God. Secondly, they trust. Third, they delight themselves in the Lord. Look at this verse here, verse number four. The meek and the humble delight themselves also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Let me say this. Every person under the sound of my voice, every person watching online, if this is three months later in the archive on sermon audio, wherever you're listening to this, here's the the truth, the facts of life. Every single person here needs a break. Everybody needs some rest. Everybody needs a respite from the madness of life. You need to be away from your phone. You need to be away from your job. You need to be away from having to cook three meals a day. Somebody say amen. You need to rest. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to lay on the edge of your bed. And as you go into sleep, you tell God exactly what's going on in your heart. You pray and allow Him to take you into a rest that only He can take you to. That's one of the most healing, wonderful things that Christian has access to is prayerful sleep. You say, I've never tried it. Tried it tonight. As you go to bed tonight, don't worry about your sound machine or how many pillows you have, but lay down and as you go to sleep, talk to God. Talk to him. Tell him exactly what you're feeling and allow him to do something in your heart that only he can do. Delight yourself in the Lord. Find your peace, find your comfort in who he is. But when you take your break from life, listen to me now, this is not popular preaching. When you take your break, when you take your rest, if you're going to take a couple weeks and go to the beach, praise the Lord, take me with you. But when we go, know this, we're not taking a break from God. Your two weeks at the beach ought to be focused on God. His creation the majesty and the beauty of his capability, the ebb and the flow of the ocean going back and forth and how he knows each grain of sand and how the waves form and that he knew before time even began that that wave would fall then just like it did. Worship Him in who He is. Run to who He is and there delight yourself. Find peace. Find comfort. Do not take a break from life and leave your Bible at home. Leave your prayer life at home and find an excuse to live like hell for seven days. That's not rest. You're hurting yourself. Come back with more of God than you've ever had. Fired up, ready to serve Him, ready to love Him more. Be faithful to His house. Don't take a break from God. You say, well, here we go. You can't miss a Sunday with this pastor. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't make it a habit to where you separate yourself from God at such a distance that you can't remember what it feels like to be in this building. Take him with you in your rest and find the best rest you'll ever have. He brings comfort. He brings peace. Our peace and our comfort and our joy as Christians is in Christ. There are things in this life that will bring us joy, that will bring us peace. I love saltwater fishing. I love it. There's joy in it. I love knowing the different species of fish. I love knowing what bait they like and when they like to bite. At the end of the day, that's not my joy. And that's not my peace. You can find a substance ingest it in your body. and At the end of the day, that's not your joy and that's not your peace. The high will end. The buzz will stop. and You'll hit a brick wall at 100 miles an hour and there'll be nothing at the end but pain and hurt and sorrow. Find your peace and your comfort in who Jesus Christ is and rest in Him. He said at the end of this that he'll give you the desires of your heart. Know this, this is not some sort of cheap, put in your order like it's at Taco Bell, I'll take a quesadilla and a soft shell. That's not what this is. Here's the point, God knows what's good for you. And sometimes what you think you need the most, you do not need at all. But God knows exactly what you need. And hindsight, being what it is as humans in this experience, we can look back in our lives and say, boy, there was a place and a time where I really wanted this. This was everything I thought about. It consumed my life. But if I'd have got it, it would have destroyed my life. And God in grace and mercy didn't give it to you, and he gave you something even better. That's the nature of who our God is. He loves his children, and he gives them the desires of their heart for His glory and according to His purpose and His will. I was 12 years old on the mission field in Costa Rica and in a very difficult place. I'd been jerked up and uprooted from Asheville Christian Academy my all-star baseball team and all the things I thought I had to have at 12 and 13 years old. And mom and dad bring me in the living room and said, we're moving to Costa Rica. Where is that? South Carolina? No, we're moving to Central America. And I can remember being a bitter, angry, confused teenager. Angry with God, sitting in my room by myself. I didn't speak the language at the time. I had no friends at the time. It's in the middle of the rainy season, 12, 13 hours of rain, torrential downpour. It rained so much your tennis shoes would mold. Horrible weather. No joy. And this is before Facebook. This is before voice over internet phone. And the only thing that seemed to really help is when I got to call the 683 number in the United States. 683 happens to be Lester. And I'd get to talk to my granddaddy and my grandmama. That's the only peace I found in that madness. But the problem was, Mark... It costs $2.75 a minute to talk to the United States. And we're missionaries. We're on the field. And I'd already done that once without asking. And I never did it again. (laughs) But I can remember being in that room, hurt, broken, confused, scared, all alone, angry at God. And Paul, I get a knock on my door. My daddy comes in, he's got a big old manila envelope, and it's from home. It's from Lester. And inside that envelope is a letter from my granddaddy, a letter from my grandmama. Uh, you can't explain what those letters meant right then and there. And at the bottom of that envelope is probably $1,000 worth of phone cards. I could call home. God has your desires and your needs written directly on His heart. And you can be in the darkest, deepest hole of your existence. And at the perfect moment, God will use something as small and intricate as phone cards to let you know from heaven, I'm here. I love you. I'm in charge. You're going to be okay. Meek, humble people live in this experience. This is what the reward of this life is. That we get to live in the madness and the craziness and not have to be tied to it. That we live humbly, meekly before God and that He gives us the desires of our hearts exactly when we need it. You see, the truth is, if I understand who I am in light of my relationship with God, I talked about it Wednesday night out of that Romans 1 message. Paul said that he was a servant. The word means slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. It's the only time slavery can be used and it be right, otherwise it's evil. But I am a slave, a servant to Jesus Christ. You say, that language is too strong. No, it's perfectly correct. Because my master takes care of what I eat, and where I sleep, and the clothes on my back, the roof over my head, and the days of my life. And my master loves me so much that he even knows the hairs on my head. And it's perfect slavery that I'm bound to with Christ. I have a perfect master who loves me, who cares for me, and I'm allowed to sit at his table and dine. I have a ring on my finger, and I'm a son. I have a new robe on. It's the new man. The old man's dead. I don't have to wear the filth and the rags of what I used to be, but I can put on a tunic of color, it's the color of royalty. And I can say with a heart full of gratefulness and gratitude towards a loving Father. You have been good to me. How may I serve you from a humble, meek heart? What can I do for you, God? How can I serve the King of kings and Lord of lords? That is the life of a Christian. That you would delight yourself in your servitude to God. Number four, that you would commit unto the Lord. This verse here, verse number five commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Humble servants of the Most High God are committed to their work, they're committed to be who they're supposed to be. There's a task, there is expectation. And the humble, the meek, they commit to the need and the desire of the master. It's active faithfulness. How can I be faithful now? How can I show that I love? How can I be a part and play my part, be the role that I'm supposed to be in? Be faithful to him actively. Be faithful to read his word. It's a love letter written to you. Be faithful to pray. It's open communication with the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. We're here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. These doors are open. The lights are on. A preacher's in the pulpit. People work. People have things they have to do. People have lives and jobs and children. But if you can, make an effort to be here. Be faithful. As the day approaches, the Bible says, be together more, not less. Look for an excuse to be together. Commit thyself unto the Lord. Parents, being committed to the Lord means that we teach our children to be committed to the Lord. Teach your children now what it means to give a faith promise That we support our missionaries. You know what will happen? Your child will give that once a month or twice a month to faith promise out of their allowance or what they've worked for. And when the missionary comes and the missionary shares about all the work that's happened in Nepal or India or Bangladesh, that child will take pride and ownership in the fact that they labored for the Lord and that there's results. People have been saved. Churches have been built Be faithful to teach your children to be faithful. Commit thy ways. Your lifestyle should be committed primarily to God. Number five, and then we'll have one last. Rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Verse number seven. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. That's the key. Patience. It's one thing to trust God to fix the problem immediately, instant fix, instant gratification. It's another thing to trust God for the fact that he is capable to change it. But his timing is perfect. There may be something you pray for for 10 years and God answers it in 12. There may be something that you pray for your entire life. You die, you go to heaven, but that prayer is still being prayed in heaven. And five years after you're in the grave, God answers the prayer. God's timing is everything. Trust Him and wait patiently upon the Lord. Then lastly, cease from anger. Humble, meek people. Cease from anger. Verse number 8 says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. There's that word again, fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse number 10 is our victory, church. This is where we end. For yet in a little while. Well, I love the way that sounds. For yet in a little while. And the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. You know what the Bible's saying here? Collison, one day you'll go to look for the evildoer. You'll go to look to see where the enemy is. You'll go to look to see what his next attack for your life is. You'll go to look to see what he's planning for you, and he won't exist. One day, this thing is all coming to an end. And the evildoer himself will be sent into an eternity of judgment and damnation. We get the victory yet in a little while. Church, hold on. Hold on. Don't allow this world to force you into sinful anger. I know your country is changing. I know there are lies being told. I know that there is zero trust in systems. Things are changing. But the Bible's clear. Don't even worry yourself with it pray for them carry the burden be who you need to be the salt and the light be the change in the culture but at the end of the day rest your head on the pillow and know that God is in control he'll take care of it all and some of you are living your life in constant fret. you're living your life carrying the burden of too much that God never intended you to carry in the first place the problem is pride It's pride. You're not willing to admit there is an issue. You're not willing to admit there is a problem and you won't let go of it. Well, today you need to let go of it. You need to say, God, I am that spiritual beggar. I am absolutely destitute on my own. I am mourning the condition of my heart. I step away from this. I humbly and meekly ask you to intervene. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one moving looking around there's a lot in these few verses it's a lot to take in but is there anyone here today you say pastor I am that person I am carrying more than I ought to I'm fretting this world I'm fretting the things of life my country my family I'm stressed I'm depressed I'm anxious over everything that this world is becoming, would you be man enough, woman enough to raise your hand and just say, Pastor, that's me. Literally, hands all over the building. Maybe you're here today and you are on the outside looking in. You don't know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've yet to call on His name, to believe upon His name for salvation. And today you are undone you need a Savior. It's no accident that you're here. If you're watching online and you're not saved, you're not sure you're saved, this can be a wonderful day. God can change your life forever. Is there anybody here under the sound of my voice that would say, Pastor, I'm not saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. No one's going to come to you or embarrass you. We just want to know how to pray. I'm not saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. We're almost out of here. It's almost over. If we get a hundred more years, it'll be a drop in the bucket of eternity. If this world exists 200 more years, it's a drop in the bucket of what time has been, even since the cross. Jesus could come at any moment. If you raised your hand today, you're carrying the fret of this world. Heartache, the pain, the stress, the anxiety, the depression of this life. That was you that raised your hand. I want us to stand all over the building and I want us to open the altars. I don't want you to come for anyone else but you if you raised your hand. I want you to take that hand, follow it out and come and pray and give it to God. Simply give it to Him. He will listen. He will answer. He'll give you exactly what you need.